Hello, listeners of The Week's Worst. Your usual host here, Dr. Stephen J. Allen. Rather than doing our normal episode this week, we attended CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, where we had a panel called Revolt of the Deplorables inside the 2016 election. That's the topic of my forthcoming book. The panel featured myself, Fox News contributor Mercedes Schlapp, co-author of the Almanac of American Politics, Michael Barone, National Review writer Jim Garrity, and it was hosted by the Capital Research Center's president, Scott Walter. Here's the audio from that panel, and next week we'll be back with a new episode with Matthew Vadim and me. Hope you enjoy. Thanks so much, everybody, for coming. Really appreciate your turning out. And uh, the, I am Scott Walter. I'm the president of the Capital Research Center, which is hosting this event here at CPAC. Uh, I won't take much of your time. You, uh, if you're here, you should know that the point of the panel is to discuss election 2016, revolt of the deplorables. Uh, and the first off, we're going to have uh, first off, we're going to have Jim Garrity of National Review. And my first question, or he's going to answer our first question, which is a really tough one: true or false? Were the elites out of touch in 2016? Gabby. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> now I want to thank the, uh, how's this sounding, good? Uh, I want to thank the Capital Research Center for having us here today. Uh, my name is Jim Garrity, senior political correspondent at National Review, because that's what you call a political correspondent who gets old. Um, and yes, the question is, are the elites living in a separate world from the little guys? Yeah, that's kind of what makes them elite, or at least makes them think of themselves as being elite. I think the more, probably the more relevant and important question is, do our political elites, economic elites, social and media elites, are they living in a separate world from the rest of America? And how big of a problem is this? And the answer is, yeah, it is a pretty big problem. I think you might argue this is the driving force between some of our most biggest causes of national division today. And I'm going to begin with some uh, utterly horrible anecdotes that will upset you and leave you angry and want you to leave, uh, want you to throw uh, tomatoes and rotten fruit at me. Uh, notice that I'm quoting people. I am not endorsing. You know, you see on Twitter, retweets are not endorsements, right? But it came in, a, in a, an article about the new global elite. Uh, and it's in the Atlantic magazine. It's not some, you know, uh, something you'd expect to see in WorldNet Daily or anything. Is anyone from WorldNet Daily here? Okay, probably should, you know, ask that before I make that metaphor. So it was a description of people who are really, really successful in today's global economy, not just the 1%, but remember the one-tenth of 1%, the one-tenth of the one-tenth of 1%. Uh, and they were talking to them about the global economy and frustration in the uh, American uh, uh, economy. This is you know, probably around 2010 or so, 2011, the US economy. The Obama administration was telling us everything was fine. Uh, your mileage may vary. And it was a, a quote from a US-based CEO of one of the world's largest hedge funds. Uh, now, this person was not identified by name, so we just have to assume the Atlantic got it right. But the quote was, if the transformation of the world economy lifts four people in China and India out of poverty and into the middle class, and meanwhile, this means one American drops out of the middle class, that's not such a bad trade, the CEO recalled. Well, it's not a good trade if you're that one American. <laughs> And if you're that hedge fund guy, well, of course, he's not going to worry about this. He's doing fine. Uh, but there was another qu quote in there that I thought was even more vivid and illustrated 
uh, this lack of empathy and this lack of connection between the most elites in society and those below them. Uh, it was a Taiwanese-born 30-something chief financial officer of a US uh, internet company, attended US public schools as a child, went on to Harvard University. And the quote was that the American middle class, quote, demands a higher paycheck than the rest of the world. So if you're gonna demand 10 times the paycheck, you need to deliver 10 times the value. It sounds harsh, but maybe people in the middle class need to decide to take a pay cut. That's okay, you can boo. Uh, now, sentiments like this from, you know, the super rich are gonna make anybody start to sound a little bit like Elizabeth Warren. I wanna say to this guy, who do you think paid the taxes so this guy could go to school in a good public school? Americans. Now, Harvard University has always had this international flavor, but who are the people who really built Harvard University into what it is today? Americans. Who are the people who his internet company serves? Americans. In fact, as he's giving this interview to The Atlantic, who does he think built the building that he's sitting in? Probably Mexicans. <laughs> but, with, but with some American supervision, so. But here's this guy who doesn't feel any particular sense of duty or obligation to ensure people in what is assumedly his home country. He's Taiwanese born, but I assume an American citizen. And he doesn't feel all that uh, need to see people in his own country thriving. Um, now, obviously, I, I work for National Review. Uh, I live outside the Beltway. I'm not one of those inside the Beltway journalists. I'm out by about a mile in Fairfax County. But it's totally different out there. It's, it, the air is fresher. The sun shines a little brighter, you know. It was less of the fog of Washington. But I, you know, I, I cannot say that I am completely not one of the media elite. If you make a living in media, you're a media elite. Um, Charles Murray is a political scientist at the American Enterprise Institute, and he put forth maybe the best measuring stick of the separation between the elites, particularly in media, and everyone else. Um, he wrote this great book called uh, Coming Apart, and he contended that they have this, we've generated this wealthy, super-educated, super-snobby class of elites living in super-zip codes. They're cloistered together, they date each other, they marry each other, they have super-elite children, and they're kind of getting this smaller, specialized, you know, uh, you can see a Gattaca-like future of genetic super people who are going to look down upon us, and we're, we're building the time machine with H.G. Wells, and we're now all the mole people working beneath them. Um, Charles Murray did not use the mole people metaphor, by the way. He's not, you know, keep that in mind. Um, we're not all going to be working in caves and mining. But uh, he created the bubble test, which measures how much of a bubble you live in compared to the average American. I took the test. I came right around in the middle. Uh, apparently, I have very middle American film tastes, but I am an absolute beer snob. And I will not, you know, you will, you will pry my blueberry wheat from my cold, dead hand. It's cold because the bottle's chilled. Um, and so another good example of this, John Ekdahl, who used to contribute to the blog Ace of Spades, wrote earlier this year on Twitter, the top three best-selling vehicles in America are pickup trucks. Question to reporters, do you personally know someone who owns one? Now, actually, out of curiosity, this, we have a good crowd here. How many people know at least one person who owns a pickup truck? You have a pickup, there you go. You're super not elite. You're special, but you're not elite. Um, but you're not in a bubble, you're not isolated. And the reaction to this on Twitter from, let's just, just picture your typical Brooklyn hipster uh, writing for a, you know, uh, a left of center site, was just thermonuclear. And my, my guess is if the answer is, yeah, I know two people. Okay, that's fine. You know, if you, that, only, that question only really bothers you if you don't. 
And the not-so-subtle implication that, well, there's a whole group of Americans out there who you just have zero contact with whatsoever. Now, I think the true journalistic sin is not a lack of friends with, uh, with pickup trucks, but a lack of curiosity about the lives of the millions of Americans who are outside the major cities who own them, particularly if you're going to be writing about those Americans. If your job is to cover the Philadelphia Eagles, maybe you don't need to know somebody with a pickup truck, although I bet you one of the players does. Um, but if your job is to write about the American electorate, the American economy, the country as a whole, get to know somebody with a pickup truck. It's probably going to do you some good. Uh, now, I point out everybody is in a bubble of some kind, which is why it's, we should point on the right should kind of recognize that we can get in our own little uh, cultural cloister, our own. How many of you have traveled in an airplane in the last year? Okay, a good chunk of the room. You're in the minority. Less than half of all Americans travel in an airplane in any given year. Um, how many of you, I, this is not meant to be a, you know, uh, CPAC will not be asking for donations after this, but out of curiosity, how many of you have more than $1,000 in savings? Okay, roughly 30% of Americans have more than 1,000. Right? Somebody needs to save. Um, do you commute to work using public transportation? Okay, very small. This is a representative crowd. Only 5% of Americans commute to work using public transportation. Now, I'll bet the percentage of people who work in media in places like New York City or Washington, D.C., or Los, maybe Los Angeles, commute using public transportation. And everyone's like, you'll see these stories. America is falling back in love with public transportation. I, I don't really fall that emotionally strong about a subway car. Um, but maybe, maybe they are, but I'm guessing, no, what is is that big city journalists are falling back in love with public transportation. But my absolute favorite example of this, of the elitism you find in these bubbles, comes in the realm of culture. Now, I have another good measuring stick. How many of you watched the HBO show Game of Thrones? Yeah, it was about evenly split or so. Um, Time Magazine called Game of Thrones the last consensus show on television. The audience for Game of Thrones is about 23 million people. That's, that, that is a lot. Good for you, Game of Thrones. Way to go with the naked beheadings. Everybody loves the show. But that's 23 million people out of a country of 317 million people, right? This is a very small minority. But my absolute favorite example of people being in a bubble and having no idea of how isolated they are comes from that fine institution, BuzzFeed. Is anybody from BuzzFeed here? Okay, all right, so um, it refers to the, the hit Broadway show Hamilton. Now, if you like Hamilton, fantastic. This is not about the quality of the programs. It's just talking about the, the, uh, how commonly they are enjoyed. They honest to goodness, March 2016, they wrote that hit Broadway musical Hamilton that everyone you know has been quoting for months. Has anyone ever come up to you and quoted Hamilton? <laughs> Maybe if your neighbor is like Lin-Manuel Miranda, that happens to you. But everyone you know has been quoting it for months. Now, I went back and checked, and you run the numbers. At that point, roughly 384,000 people had seen the musical. Oh, my God. Right? Now, now, maybe some people saw it performing at the Tonys or something, but Hamilton is a really exclusive experience, and this person really believed that everybody's doing it. Um, so most people aren't like you, and it's something, I remember hearing this from my journalism professors and that we in reporting world have to recognize this. The good news of most people not being like you is that it means you're special. And to quote the wise Minnesota senator, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Now technically that's Stuart Smalley, but Al Franken said the words. The bad news about being special is we have this unbelievable temptation to believe that our experiences and perspective are universal, or at the very least, much more common than they are. And that is how bad journalism gets made.
So, and with that happy note, I'll pass it along. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jim. Uh, our second question is going to go to Mercedes Schlapp, Fox News contributor. Uh, and the question is, the elites did not see 2016 coming, uh, as Jim has just explained. How did the conservative movement handle uh, the surprises of 2016? So I don't drive a pickup truck, but I drive a minivan. Where does that put me? I, I'm somewhere, in the, somewhere in the middle, I think, I'm yeah. Middle. I'd say in the 1980s. Well, Light SUV. Yeah. Thank you all for having me here, Scott, uh, and as well all of you for being here. Of course, we can. You're you're the reason why we this, this we have the CPAC conference, and it's such a huge success. And I want to start with a quote from William F. Buckley, who was a founder of the American Conservative Union and one of the uh, most impressive conservative thinkers of of our time. I've always believed that conservatism is the politics of reality. And that reality ultimately asserts itself in a, in a reasonably free society on behalf of the conservative position. So let's keep in mind this idea of politics of reality. Because I think that we, uh, the conservatives faced a very different reality, uh, and to a certain extent, a different outcome that they expected in the election. If you were to look at it in the purest sense, and this is where I think, uh, Jim, you talked about the elitist and, and that disconnect uh, to the rest of America, I think you see that happening even amongst conservatives themselves. The, what I would say the conservative elitist or the conservative purist um, that really had a strong sense of basically saying that Donald Trump would, was an unacceptable option as a candidate. And that, uh, you, which partly then led to the hashtag never Trump movement. And there was so much tension in the conservative movement, I would say, during the election cycle because of this celebrity, this unknown factor, this individual who hasn't been part of the conservative foundation in the past you know, decade, 20 years. And, and I, I think for many conservatives, especially those what I would consider the conservative purists, felt very, they were uneasy, they were uncomfortable with um, accepting Donald Trump or even giving him a chance. And I would say out of all the candidates, and you know, I don't, they all have uh, the, many of them of the Republican, in the Republican primary have conservative credentials. Uh, you, like a Senator Marco Rubio, uh, you have, I would say the one that got the 100% ACU rating was Ted Cruz, and he was definitely a, a favorite amongst conservatives, conservatives but interestingly enough, uh, Senator Cruz, who I have great respect for, uh, someone who basically pushed and organized his campaign around trying to get that evangelical conservative vote, and it fell short. And he was focusing on those southern states, states like South Carolina. Uh, and when you look at the primary, I'm just going to take South Carolina as, as the case, Trump won the South Carolina primary, and he in those exit polls, he won evangelical votes, voters beating Ted Cruz by six points. And I remember the night of the South Carolina primary uh, when Senator Cruz's political plan of, of focusing on the very conservative um, voters, and obviously he did better in the caucus states uh, than he did in the, in the primary states. At that point, 
I, I thought this, this Trump is, this is just a bulldozer. He's just gonna bulldozer his way into the nomination because he was gaining so much momentum. And then obviously when uh, it was the primary in Florida and Senator Marco Rubio could not win his own state, at that point you knew that Donald Trump was for real. So guess what did the con these purist conservatives did? Ah, they're freaking out. So they're on all these shows, and I, let me tell you, Jim knows this, Michael knows this as well. They, they spend a lot of time in the green room at Fox and, and these other stations, and, and they would come in, and I'll never forget, one of my dearest friends, who I will remain nameless, uh, he's a pundit, he appears a lot in a couple of these shows, um, and he looked at me and he goes, gosh, isn't it great? Senator Rubio won the caucus in Minnesota. And I looked at him, and I'm like, Minnesota, really? Like, he's, 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 he's not going to win. You guys have to let go. It's not going to work anymore. And so this green room talk, or we'll call it the green room bubble, don't you think? That'd be appropriate. Uh, is the fact that there was such disbelief, disbelief of what was happening. And then there was a moment and during the campaign, obviously, you know, certain things happened, certain people would call it scandals happen. And I, if you all know Charlie Hurd, he's at the Washington Times. If you don't follow him, he's a great guy. He, he's, he runs the, he's the opinion editor. And so there was just a few of us there and you know, we made a decision early on, Matt and I, we didn't endorse in the primary, but when President Trump became the nominee, we said, he's our guy, Hillary Clinton is not an option. We will do what we can to ensure that he becomes President of the United States. And there was question again of who's going to stick with him, who's going to run off to the Never Trump movement or not. And, uh, and even during the most difficult times of the campaign. And so one time Charlie Hurt told me, he goes, you know, this is getting to be a very lonely green room. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought to myself, yes, but there were so many things at stake. And I think going back to this politics of reality, as William F. Buckley mentioned, it's this idea that it was a new reality. And some of these more purist conservatives weren't ready to accept, and I understand, you know, it was difficult. It was, it was trying to see, does this man who is pushing this economic populist movement, does it fit in our conservative world? I mean, we're used to the Ronald Reagan, three-legged stools, social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, national security conservatives, um, does he fit in these categories that we have been fighting for for years? But what President did, Trump did that was effective was once that, that calmed my fears, I know, was picking Vice President Mike Pence as his pick, as his partner during this journey. It, it sent a very clear message to the grassroots conservatives that he was serious, that he was willing to listen to uh, serious conservatives who understand, who've been part of the grassroots movement. And he also brought into his staff a Kellyanne Conway, who has been a longtime conservative, a board member of the American Conservative Union. And he was surrounding himself with these conservative types. And I was thinking, okay, so he's serious. He's willing to listen. He was hanging out with Senator Jeff Sessions, now our attorney general. And so I was more hopeful. And then when he released the the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court nominees, the, his, who he would pick. Okay, you gotta understand, no president does that. But he was willing to put out those names to say, I am willing to pick out of one of these men and women, 
strict constitutionalists, because I know that we need to find someone in the likings of Justice Scalia. So for the grassroots conservatives, and I know for many of those evangelical Christians who, who have, were so concerned about the protection of religious liberties, uh, and they wanted, you know, they, they were worried that we were gonna move, if Hillary Clinton were to win, that the, we would lose the court for generations to come. At that point, there were more conservatives willing to say, okay, I'm willing to give this guy a chance. And, and you're still taking a risk being this conservative, but the conservative purists were still many in denial. They were not gonna go in that direction. They were big into the, you know, it was the rise of Evan McMullen, or I call him Evan McMuffin. And, and there was this rise of, I can't, no, I'll put in Speaker Paul Ryan as my write-in. I morally cannot do it. And so I don't, I, you know, I respect their opinion, I completely understand, but when I was going across the country, and I know my husband was too, and I would talk to conservatives across the country, and I know even one of my closest friends, um, who was a never Trumper at first, and she was definitely one of my conservative purists, um, very loyal to National Review, uh, said, reads y'all people all the time, um, says, I mean, I do too, but I, I'm a little <laughs> more critical, um, I said to me, you know, she called me up the day after the election. She goes, Catholic, six kids. She'll remain nameless because I think her daughter's in here, but I'm not going to say anything. Um, she said to me, Mercy, I voted for Donald Trump. She went from being a never-Trumper who would look at me and say, I read the article in National Review, and they said, and I was like, oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and then, you know, whatever a scandal would come up, how could you vote for him, Mercy? And I was like, Supreme Court. Supreme Court, Supreme Court, because I am not going to give up my religious liberties. We need people who are going to be like Justice Scalia. And so it was very clear to me. So she voted for him, voted for Donald Trump, and it happened. It was those last minute, you know, voters, those undecided voters, that, and many of them Catholics, evangelical Christians, who turned out in support of Donald Trump. And what we have seen is that while all, us in the green room, in the green room bubble, you know, talking amongst ourselves, psychoanalyzing, going, how is this possible to rise? The polls are all telling us that there's no way he can beat Hillary Clinton. He's down by three, down by four. I remember the day of the election, I was up in New York and, and I ran into a couple of the staff, campaign staffers and they kept saying, I'm like, how does it look? How does Florida look? I was looking at Florida. That was my one state. I was like, and they're like, it looks bad. I don't think we're gonna win this. And I kept going, okay, that's not good. But so they themselves weren't optimistic, and when it's the night started to turn around, and then it was, we're winning, we won Wisconsin, and then we win Pennsylvania. And I was with a bunch of the New York NYPD cops that were up in the Trump victory party, and they go, so what happens if we win Pennsylvania? And I said, we win. <laughs> so, um, so I think it's been a humbling lesson for all of us, for the conservative pundits, elites, uh, for those who go out there and you know live in the uh, in in that part of America that is not necessarily connected to the Rust Belt states, that don't go visit these communities that are suffering, and that go and sit there and we think really big thoughts. But you got to talk to the people, because the people sent a very clear message this past November, and the one thing that we know is that we are living in the politics of reality, and that Donald Trump is gonna impact the conservative movement. I think so far he's impacting it in a positive way. And I think as my husband said this morning, 
He said, as long as he continues to keep up the fight of pushing forward on conservative principles, we will have your back, Mr. President. And I think that's exactly what we're going to do. Thanks. Thanks very much, Mercy. Uh, next up will be Michael Barone, co-author of the Almanac of American Politics. And the question that he has been given is, was 2016 really a realignment? heard already a lot of scathing comments about uh, inside the Beltway people and never Trumpers. Um, so I, as a matter of disclosure, uh, I'm a graduate of Harvard and Yale. I've lived deep inside the Beltway for more than 40 years and uh, I didn't know Jim Garrity at school at all. Um, really, I mean, a mile outside the Beltway. Um, and. Uh, uh, is for never Trumper. Uh, I I have my reservations about uh, the president. Uh, I've been delighted about some of the things he's done. Uh, as I described myself to uh, uh, fellow members of the press after the election, um, my response was I was delighted that Hillary Clinton lost and nervous about Donald Trump winning. No. And. Uh, is I, I note that at the end of her talk, Mercedes said that uh, her husband says that so far Trump has done all right. So I sense a little bit of nervousness there in, in that uh, comment as well. Um, but uh, the way I've made, tried to make my living inside the Beltway is by interpreting people outside the Beltway to people who are inside the Beltway and to some extent vice versa. And uh, how has my record been on that? Not perfect, but it's it's been there, and I'm trying to observe and see what's going to happen. Uh, going into the election, I shared the view of the um, 538 website, which is based in Manhattan, by the way, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, there was a one out of three chance that Donald Trump uh, would win the election uh, based on polling and analysis and so forth. And uh, if you roll the dice, you get a one or a two say a five or a six, one out of three times, uh, and that's what happened in America. Uh, and uh, one out of three chance, as Nate Silver of 538 points out, is not zero. And it turns out in this thing, it's closer to one than zero uh, in this election, in this zero-sum game that are our elections. So let me address Scott's question, was there, was in 2016 a realignment? And I guess I'd start off by saying that the um, Political scientist David Mayhew at Yale um, says there really aren't political alignments, and what the historians have called political alignments aren't exactly political alignments. I think uh, Mayhew is mostly right about that. Um, nonetheless, I'll try to address this, the question anyway, and my short answer is no, it wasn't a realignment. It was a modest change further of, of voters. Uh, you're seeing segments of the electorate moving further in a direction that they've been going uh, for the last 20 years. Uh, I mean, we've been seeing, we've been living in a two-decade period of very static partisan alignments, of basic partisan parity with the 
Democrats winning four out of seven presidential elections and Republicans winning uh, majorities in the House of Representatives in nine out of 11 elections. Uh, very close parity. Uh, the best way to predict one election is to just take the results of the last one and maybe adjust it by a point, point or two. Uh, that's been the rule so far. Uh, there was a lot, <coughs> excuse me, a lot less change in this presidential election number, state by state, demographic group by demographic group, uh, than you see, for example, between 1976 and 80, between 1980 and 84, between 1988 and 92. I would argue there's less difference between 1996 and 2016, a 20-year period, than there was in that uh, in either one, any one of those three four-year periods. Um, but obviously, and this is always possible when you have a static alignment and very close parity between the parties, um, this has produced a major change in the result. Uh, it is in the process of producing a major change in public policy. Uh, the press is bewitched by tweets, uh, but if they look what's, you know, my analysis in my latest Washington Examiner column is, if you look at the substance, we're seeing some public policy changes just in the last five weeks of this administration that are changing uh, the country and likely to change it in important and serious ways with reverberations for years to come. This was a narrow election victory with big consequences. Um, if you're looking at demographic groups, if you're looking for realignment, uh, the biggest change, if you look at the exit polls, and I can give you a whole litany of what's wrong with the exit polls and so forth, I would just note that Warren, the late Warren Matofsky, who really invented exit polls, did a study after, I think, the 2004 election, and he found that the exit poll results were farthest away from, they had the biggest WPE, within precinct error. They were the farthest off the actual precinct result where the interviewer was a female graduate student. I will let you draw out, draw out the implications. Sure, I voted for Kerry. How about you? Uh, I, would, I, would, uh, I would just leave it at that. But the, uh, the exit poll, biggest change uh, was the change in when you divide white voters uh, into uh, college whites and non-college graduate whites. And by the way, the exit poll overstates the percentage of the electorate that are college graduated whites. Um, and basically, white college moved away from the Republican Party and, yeah, toward Hillary Clinton. Uh, and they gave Romney a 14-point edge, 56-42. Uh, Trump got a four-point edge, 49-45. Um, and one of the interesting things in the fact that the, uh, where the Democrats made some gains, if you look at California, if you look at uh, Metro Phoenix, Metro Houston, Metro Dallas, Metro Atlanta, what you see is that high income, high education people, you go to those neighborhoods where you're likely to see fellow Ivy League graduates, right, Jim? Uh, they they had been voting about 70, 75% Republican, unlike their demographic counterparts in the north, northeast, midwest, and so forth. Um, they moved down to about 50 to 55 percent Republican. They started, and we'll have a special election in Tom Price's district in the north side of Metro Atlanta on April 16th with the runoff June 20th, where we'll see uh, that was a district that was 20 points Romney, a point and a half Trump. 
uh, and Democrats are sensibly targeting this seat. I don't think they'll win it, but you know that's that's something to watch. So there was an advantage for Democrats there, and this is part of the ascended America thing. This was the coalition that was going to take over the country. White non-college went from 61-36 Romney. That's a 25-point margin. It's pretty good. Um, to 67-28 Trump. That's a 39% margin. Oh, and it's a 39% margin among people who are probably 40 to 45% of the national electorate. Uh, you know, we've been looking at the similar size margins among Hispanic voters for the Democratic candidates, including Hillary Clinton. They're 10 or 11% of the electorate. You get a 39-point yeah. uh, margin from uh, 40% of the electorate, that's a different thing. So those were significant shifts. If you look back over the history of the last 20 years uh, and you look at, uh, at what the transformations into this electoral parity that we got in the 1990s, the movement among college whites uh, towards, Demo towards Democrats has been there. It was accentuated in this election. The movement of non-college whites towards Republicans was there. It was accentuated quite a bit in this election and decisively in election. In effect, what Donald Trump um, uh, made a deal with the American electorate. Uh, he traded off declines among college whites that affected the results perceptibly in California, Arizona, Texas, and Georgia, states with a lot of electoral votes. Didn't change any electoral votes. Uh, then Trump gained non-college whites in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Maine, congressional district plus uh, Florida. That's 100 extra electoral votes that went for Barack Obama in 2012 uh, and, and went for Donald Trump in 2016. But remember, um, all of you who are in triumphant moods about this, um, Donald Trump carried uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin each by less than 1.0% of the vote. That's a close margin. Mm -hmm. uh, this candidacy, this strategy, this deal uh, threaded a needle. Uh, as you know, he didn't win the popular vote in America uh, nationally. Uh, part of that is that for the first time in our history, the largest state is at one extreme in the political spectrum. Never happened before when California or New York were the largest states. They've been even to the national uh, spectrum. Uh, this has changed. Um, basically, so this election result is kind of a rebuke to people like the pollster Stan Greenberg, the journalist Ron Brownstein, the analyst John Judas, and uh, Ray Teixeira that have argued that there's an inevitable Democratic majority uh, made up of uh, people of color, you know, this sort of felicitous phrase for drawing together a, a whole lot of people that come from very different backgrounds, have different sets of beliefs and so forth and single women and uh, more college-educated people and so forth. Um, obviously, it wasn't enough. Hillary Clinton did make some gains, as I said, in some places on the basis that are consistent with that, uh, but it wasn't uh, anything like, uh, like what we, uh, uh, like enough to give her 270 electoral votes. Uh, so, you know, she ran pretty close in Arizona where high-income voters and Mormons lot that fall in both categories moved away from the Republicans, not that much. The key region um, is what I call the outstate Midwest. I'm from Michigan. We refer to part of Michigan outside the million plus metro area of Detroit and now Grand Rapids is outstate. 
Uh, and if you look at parts of the Midwestern states, plus Pennsylvania, which has a sort of Midwestern personality, at least when you get out of range of the uh, cheesesteak belt and so forth in Philadelphia, um, you, you have, um, uh, you're looking at uh, uh, an area, and you go outside the million plus metro areas. That's where the big change took place. Not a lot of change in the big metro areas. The high income areas, pretty democratic in all those states. The uh, blacks, central city, hugely democratic. Minor changes, some drops in turnout, partly because some black people are just leaving places like Metro Detroit for Metro Atlanta. Um, they're going to, from where, places where their side of the political part, their part, political party has misgoverned and going to places where the other political party has governed better. Um, in any case, those metro areas were about the same. Outstates were big difference. And basically, um, if you look at the, um, the outstate percentage margin uh, for Republicans, you see in Pennsylvania, you compare it with uh, 2012. It's up 12 points in Pennsylvania, 20 points in Ohio, 17 points in Michigan, 13 points in Wisconsin, 16 points in Iowa, which doesn't have any, none of whose 99 counties is in a million plus metro area. Those are big changes when you've been operating for 20 years in a period of static partisan preference uh, to see uh, that kind of shift there. Um, and uh, basically, the Midwest, which George W. Bush in 04 carried 5148, uh, which Obama carried 5148 in 2012, uh, was carried 4945 by Trump uh, in 2016. That's a one point bigger difference than George W. Bush had, but it really comes out in electoral votes. Uh, Bush lost the electoral vote in the Midwest and Pennsylvania, 69 to 66. Trump won it 108 to 30 and came within two points of carrying Minnesota. Uh, and so that was, um, that was, uh, that was a significant difference. Uh, so, in conclusion, is this, um, is this a realignment in the sense that the historians, perhaps misleadingly, uh, have used that term? Uh, as I said, that the trend among college-educated, or perhaps we should say college-miseducated people, uh, has been towards Democrats. Uh, the trend among non-college whites uh, has been toward Republicans. That was accentuated and punctuated this year. Um, and, and as I mentioned, but we're not seeing anything <coughs> of the magnitude of white Southern voters flipping from George Wallace in 68 to Nixon in 72 to Jimmy Carter in 76 to Ronald Reagan by 1984. Um, we haven't seen a magnitude like that. We've seen more in the way of marginal changes. What we do see is that the Midwest um, uh, which with the South and Pennsylvania, the Midwest is now voting more like the South than it's voting like the East and the West. The Goldwater Coalition was the South and the West. The Midwest and the East, using my own definitions here, uh, were basically, uh, there were better areas for Lyndon Johnson in 64. The Conservative Coalition now is the South and the Midwest, with the West and the East uh, worse. Uh, and I just leave you with one other note. Uh, it's about a column that I wrote in October, which was not totally unprescient, uh, Mercedes. 
um, and which is the uh, which I compared the what the alignments we were seeing in the polling in the presidential race with uh, what happened in the UK in the Brexit referendum and what happened in the uh, in Colombia in the peace referendum. Yeah. Brexit was June 23rd. The peace referendum was October 2nd. And in both cases, and I would submit in the presidential case, we've seen the same interesting phenomenon. We've seen an establishment, media, financial, uh, government, uh, all on one side of an important issue, whether the UK should leave the European Union, whether the accord that President Santos uh, reached with the FARC guerrillas uh, should be approved and who should be president of the United States. Um, and uh, in each case, the establishment was hugely on one side. You, if you went to the parties with my fellow graduates and alum, I mean, I didn't go to my 50th college reunion. I mean, that it just wasn't going to be any fun in October uh, and so forth. Um, you know, and uh, they were all on one side. When you look at the voting behavior, it's the same in all three. The metropolis, the capital, London, Bogota, the coasts, vote establishment. The ethnic and geographic fringes vote uh, establishment. So you get Muslim voters, Scots, uh, Northern Ireland voting remain in the UK. You get the Caribbean and Pacific coasts of Colombia. The historic heartlands of the country, the areas that have the biggest consciousness of having been uh, through family roots and traditions part of the country for a long period of time. Uh, England outside of London, 74% of the country. The Cordillera, out the mountain and valleys outside, Colombia outside, Bogota, which is about 50% uh, of the country. And uh, the uh, south, the Midwest, and, and add Pennsylvania. Uh, voted another way and surprised the experts. So the fact that Donald Trump and Nigel Farage were here, I suppose, is symbolically relevant, and you're only missing former President Alvaro Uribe of Colombia, who opposed the referendum. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michael. It's a shame he doesn't know a little more, but you know, maybe next time he can study up. Uh, the next question uh, goes to my colleague, Dr. Stephen J. Allen. Uh, he's with me at the Capital Research Center as Vice President and Chief Investigative Officer. Uh, he's also writing a book with the title Revolt of the Deplorable, so watch for that. But uh, Steve has a science PhD. He also has a law degree, but for the purposes of this panel, uh, his top credential is that he was born on a chicken farm in Alabama wow. in the foothills of Appalachia. And then in 1976, he was a delegate for Ronald Reagan uh, at the GOP convention. And of course, Ronald Reagan was not the eminence grise of all of our side and the wonderful uh, paterfamilias. He was an outrageous young Turk who was causing conniption fits among the establishment for perhaps bringing down the uh, current incumbent Republican president. Uh, Steve went on to cause trouble with the Tea Party, where he was the founding editor of the Tea Party Review. Uh, and then the 2012 election, uh, when the establishment was all in for Romney, uh, Steve was working on Newt Gingrich's campaign. So the question for Steve is, can you give us a little bit of the prehistory uh, of the deplorables? Absolutely. Uh, you know, everything has a beginning. 
And uh, I, I go back uh, looking at the tracing the grassroots populist movement that led to the Trump victory. As President Trump has said many times, uh, it was a movement. It was not something that he personally uh, did all the work. Uh, he was he was the spokesman, but there, there was a movement that existed prior to him. And you can trace it back, I think, to 19. Uh, you can be arbitrary about it, but but I trace it back to 1964. That's when Phyllis Schlafly, uh, who of course died this last year, published a book called uh, A Choice, Not an Echo. She she self-published it. It sold three million copies. Uh, and it was about how Republican kingmakers, she called them, used every trick in the book to repeatedly dictate the Republican nominee for president, quote, just as completely as the Paris dressmakers control the length of women's skirts. Uh, and this was really the beginning of the, the fight against uh, the Republican establishment, the sustained fight that came out of the Goldwater campaign. Or you could trace it to the Reagan campaign in 1976. Um, where the President, president Reagan, uh, was uh, the former governor of California, was challenging the incumbent president of the United States and the Republican Party, within the party. And that's when Reagan identified, quote, the forces that have brought us our problems as the Congress, the bureaucracy, the lobbyists, big business, and big labor. And then there was a pamphlet that I wrote for the campaign quoting him uh, during this time that uh, had him attacking big government, big business, and big labor. And you note the presence in there of big business. That was not something Republicans often did in those days, but he became the spokesman for what we called the, uh, the grassroots wing of the Republican Party as opposed to the country club wing of the Republican Party. They called us Huns, and so we had little buttons made that said, we're, we live in Hun country, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, uh, so for a time, uh, it, it, was, it was kind of interesting that the, a lot of the people who most strongly opposed President Reagan, Ronald Reagan, when he was running for president, were people who'd worked for Goldwater. Uh, and the reason is that they'd learned their lesson uh, from the Goldwater campaign, which is that no strong conservative could ever be elected president of the United States. And certainly if they had been working for Goldwater and Goldwater hadn't been successful, well then nobody could get elected uh, who was a conservative uh, if he couldn't get elected with their support. And then they became what we now call the rhinos. And just to be clear, uh, to me a rhino is not someone who is necessarily a moderate. A rhino is someone who accepts the premises of the other side and won't fight. So, for example, John Boehner is, I think, a strong conservative and a rhino, whereas Rudy Giuliani is a moderate and not a rhino. So uh, it, it does make a difference. Uh, it, whether you fight, that's basically what determines it. So Reagan got elected on his third try, uh, but even with him in the White House, he was working from what was available. Uh, the Republican Party was still a party that had a big liberal wing, certainly moderate wing. There have been Republicans just recently that had 100% liberal ratings from various groups. And uh, when he put his cabinet in, I think ACU just uh, did a study where they rated his cabinet, I think at 63% conservative, which was the best he could do given the resources that he had at the time. We were supposed to build on what he did, and, and that's what we tried to do. So then we come along uh, to the early 80s and a fellow named Richard Vigory, who was the publisher of Conservative Digest. And this is a little bit uh, something that I was involved in, so uh, I, uh, I have some show and tell things here. Uh, in 1982, Conservative Digest had a contest to see, well, what were we going to call this new movement that we were trying to build? It was kind of a little different from the, the old conservative movement that was more Republican. This was going to be more populist, more grassroots, more for blue-collar workers. Uh, and they came up with populist conservative or populist. They really couldn't come up with anything better than that in the little contest they had. But in any event, Richard brought me along. Long, and I worked with him to uh, flesh out this ideology. What were our main issues going to be? How were we going to be different from what had come before? And uh, we had an article in the Washington Post uh, 
see if this sounds familiar, America's ruling class has got to go. <laughs> and uh, I have copies of this over here if anybody wants one after our talks. Uh, but the, um, the interesting thing is this is dated November 27th, 1983. Uh, in 22 days, that'll be a third of a century. And if you look in this article, most of the things that became the Trump platform uh, are included, included in this piece. And uh, we, we, of course, went back to Thomas Jefferson, really, for the beginning, because Jefferson, in a letter to Henry Lee, he talked about the natural parties of mankind. Then in every country where people are allowed to think and read and speak, uh, they would divide themselves into one party that represents the higher classes who fear and distrust the people, and another party of those who identify themselves with the people, have confidence in them, and cherish them. And so we were trying to represent the, the, the populist wing of that. And uh, we got a lot of attention with this, uh, with this article and with the book uh, that came out of it, which I have a copy of here, you can see. Uh, the Establishment versus the People. This was on the Wall Street Journal list of the notable books of the year. Uh, National Review actually gave us a, 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 a tactus. Uh, that, you know, that happens with National Review sometimes. But, but to, to, to their great credit, they gave us the opportunity to respond in the pages of National Review, which is the article I have here. So we were developing this, this new ideology, and then along, uh, you know, we predicted in the article that this populist revolt would break out by the end of the decade. We were a little off, but not much, because if you look at 1992, Pat Buchanan runs for president against uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush, gets almost a quarter of the vote in the Republican primaries. Uh, Ross Perot then runs, uh, largely on the platform that we had uh, laid out, and he uh, at one point is the front runner, and before he has his crack up, uh, he, uh, he's doing pretty well, uh, and even so ends up with 19% of the vote. And then two years later, we had the Gingrich Revolution, where Republicans took control of Congress for the first time in, in 40 years, and that was largely a case of the Perot people going into the Republican column and forming a coalition. So that grew out of all of this. Then we go to into the 2000s. You have Donald Trump considering running for president in, in the year 2000. He actually wins two states in the Reform Party nomination process, I think after he had dropped out of the race, California and Michigan. Uh, and, uh, and then that takes us up to the Tea Party in 2010. And by that point, I think most of you folks have some idea of the narrative. Uh, if you want to talk to me about it some more, we can do that. But, uh, but I think uh, that, that gives you some of the background that maybe people don't have about how the Trump thing didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, it was something that developed over a long time. And by the way, here's the book I wrote on, uh, uh, with, with Richard Vigory on uh, George H.W. Bush that came out in time for the 92 election. And of course, to, to, as any author needs to be humbled, uh, it has a 50 cent sticker from the remainder bin. <coughs> but I'm sure, you, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you can get it cheaper than that on eBay. So thank you. Okay. Thanks very much, Steve. The, uh, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, I think one of the most interesting questions uh, to see if anybody in the panel will uh, hit back is, so there was this unusual coalition that uh, su surprised everyone in 2016, but can Republic are there any other Republican candidates that are going to be able to continue uh, that uh, coalition going forward or not? Um. Well, I think there are other Republican candidates. One of the things that's interesting is that you do see, uh, even though this was an election cycle in which uh, there were no split results by uh, in president and Senate races, that is to say, uh, every state that voted Republican for president voted for a Republican senator, every state for Democrat. Uh, 
went Democratic for president, voted for Democratic senator. Some of those results were very close. And if you look at Pennsylvania, which is one of the key states that delivered those 46 electoral votes, each of which was decided by less than one percentage of the vote, um, you see that Pat Toomey is reelected senator with a slightly different coalition from Trump's. Not hugely different. Not like, you know, 1964 when, um, I w as I recall, the uh, Republican governor of Rhode Island, John Chafee, was reelected with 60% of the vote when Lyndon Johnson, the president, was carrying it with 82% of the vote. Um, that's ticket splitting. But there was, you know, Toomey carried Chester County affluent suburbs and didn't do too bad and, and, and so forth. Uh, Trump lost it. Uh, Trump carried the western counties in the states, except for Allegheny County, the county that contains Pittsburgh. Uh, he carried them by wide margins. Toomey carried them by narrower margins, but enough to win. So that was two different routes to victory. Um, I suppose 90-plus percentage of Pennsylvania voters did not split their tickets. They voted either for Trump and Toomey or for Clinton and McGinty, the Democratic nominee. But there are different avenues to go forward here for Republicans, and we can see some Republicans uh, preparing their way uh, to do that, um, you know, based on, in part on their states and districts. As a result of our straight ticket voting and static voting patterns over the last 20 years, we haven't got too many uh, either Republicans, we got more Democrats who are in states or districts that are ill-fitted to them. The, in Senate races, and we've got five of them up this year in uh, Democratic senators in states that Trump carried by double digits. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Republicans, I mean, Susan Collins is in Maine. That used to be about a 12, 15-point Democratic state as a result of uh, all those flannel shirt guys in the North Woods uh, <laughs> flipping to Trump, uh, non-college whites, et cetera. Uh, it's a four-point it was a four-point Clinton state. Susan yep. Collins has been around a long time. She's descended from Trump on a number of uh, nominations and probably will on some issues. Uh, but she's also uh, supported his position and nominees in most cases and doesn't have as great an incentive as she used to have to differentiate herself from the administration, at least so far. Yeah, Jim, actually, uh, all that talk about Pennsylvania uh, makes me think of something that I know you wrote about at one point, and that is the uh, a lot of the margin for Toomey winning the Senate race in Pennsylvania and for Trump getting the uh, Electoral College votes was precisely an erosion in minority voters for the Democrats. Yeah. And it, would it probably would not be a bad thing for the country, and it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing for any uh, for the Republican Party mm -hmm. uh, if Trump, were able, Trump, who is from a big city himself mm -hmm. um, and whose television show uh, was very popular with minority audiences, if he were able to erode uh, some of the minority votes that the Democrats take for granted, uh, how likely do you sure. think that is? Um, for all of my past criticism or mockery or times I have not been nice to Donald Trump, I want to give him absolute total credit. He came up with a brilliant strategy for lowering African-American enthusiasm and loyalty to the Democrats. It's a brilliant idea. It's a shame Republicans didn't come on it earlier. Run against Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> Which may not be totally replicatable. Maybe we'll see in 2020 or something. That, that yes, one, that is a major factor. And it's one of those things where 
um, when we talk about you know, could other Republicans kind of emulate this strategy. We should point out that Trump has some really unique strengths and qualities as a candidate that anybody else who wants to be him isn't going to have. And most notably, he's been in the public consciousness pretty much since the early 80s. And he's been associated with wealth, success, big, grandiose achievements. You know, everything, his name is on everything. And it's gold and it shines. Um, what was the, you know, the, one of the great characteristics of the Obama era was in government, nobody ever got fired. I'm going to send you out, America, I want you to go to healthcare.gov and get, you know, and the site doesn't work. Did Kathleen Sebelius get fired? No. Shinseki got to resign a couple of days later after the disaster at the VA. I'm starting to sound like Trump now. Disaster. It was a disaster at the veterans. Yeah. Um, Trump, you know, and what does Trump do on television? He fires people for doing a bad job. I'm looking and I'm seeing this clown, and in deep down, I'm sure a lot of the audience, no, no, Trump is the guy who looks at the job everybody does, figures out who's doing a good job and who's doing a bad job, and gets rid of the one who's messing around. And that's a very, you know, reassuring figure, particularly after eight years of President Obama. Now, there were a lot of guys who wanted to be the Trump of a House race or a Senate race or lower district races uh, in 2016 cycle. Most of their names have been forgotten to history. Uh, Paul Nealon probably stands out as the guy who ran against Paul Ryan, because Paul Ryan's a sellout. Paul Ryan doesn't know the first thing about conservatism. We're going to get a real, you know, and he got 15% in the primary. In a two-way primary. In a two-way primary. And I would point out that I believe last we heard of Paul Nealon, he was running for Speaker of the House because the Speaker of House doesn't have to be a member of Congress. <laughs> And that's, I mean, that's where you, your friends really should stage an intervention. And, um, so there are a lot of guys who are going to try to do the Trump shtick. They may try to talk like him. They may try to adopt his issues and his positions. But you know, the first step, be phenomenally successful and have your picture on the cover of magazines and a hit TV and, and show. And maybe be married to Melania. My advice to most Republican candidates, you're really not going to be able to do Trump, Trump's shtick yeah. as well as Trump does. So do your shtick, and hopefully it will appeal uh, to a roughly equivalent uh, chunk of the, the electorate. And there's a pattern here, because remember, Ronald Reagan. And people knew who Ronald Reagan was. If you worked at a GE plant, he had been by to see you and spoke to you. Uh, I had people telling me 20 years after the fact how proud they were that Ronald Reagan had stopped by their GE plant when he worked for GE. Uh, this was somebody who was much harder to smear and to create a fake image of. Uh, and so when Trump, uh, the, you know, whatever Teflon factor there was, that he was able to put off a lot of that stuff that he was attacked with, some of which was true. But the point is that people knew enough about Donald Trump that they were able to put it all into the mix, whereas a Ted Cruz, most people in the country would be, well, who's that guy? And you could paint him any way you want if you're on the other side. Well, I hope everybody will join me. We're over time, so I, I have to cut us off, but uh, please give our panel a round of applause. <laughs>